We're going to spend our time tonight in the first time in chapter 7, but we're going to start before we move to chapter 7. <clears throat> um, let me read for you verse 19. The men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men, and the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. All right, now, the situation is this. The, the ark has been down to the Philistines. The Philistines have um, <clears throat> found out pretty quickly that God's able to protect his own glory and look after himself. And um, <clears throat> they have, as quickly as they can, gotten rid of the ark. Uh, it's been seven months away, but they get rid of it, and they send it up to uh, Beth Shemesh. The men of Beth Shemesh take the ark. They look into the ark. God is upset with them for looking into the ark, and some of them die. All right, now, here's the problem I want to bring up with you, right? Uh, uh, in verse 19, of, it says 50,000 and threescore and 10 men died. Now, if you were to go to the ESV or the NIV, you would see 70 men died. Right? In fact, you would see the verse completely differently. It's a much shorter verse. And the rationale behind it is this. There's two, two reasons for the, for the objection uh, to the text. One, that there wasn't 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh, right? It was a small village. There couldn't have been 50,000 people. And the other is that the construction uh, of the Hebrew behind it is kind of awkward. And so they've decided that it's a copyist error, and they've removed it and just given you, left you with 70. Now, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm really, un- I'm really uncomfortable with anybody deciding what's in the Bible for me. Now, I know at some stage, somebody had to do the work of translating. We use the King James here not just because that's what we always do. We don't use the King James because we're, you know, <clears throat> we're convinced that God wrote the King James before he wrote any other Bible and that we should translate the Greek from the, from the King James. Right? That, 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 that's a, a, a thought that's out there almost. Right? But we do use it because it's a trustworthy translation. Right? That when you actually pick it up, you've got something that's trustworthy. And that's trustworthy for several reasons. It's trustworthy because it's a word-for-word translation. Look at your verse there, <clears throat> uh, verse 19. And um, you'll notice down towards the end of the verse, the word many is in italics. Now, the reason it's in italics is because that's not a word that was actually in the, in the original. It's a word that they had to put in for the sake of making the translation uh, understandable, right? But what they did was they flagged it for you by putting it in italics. What they're saying is, you know, <clears throat> listen, understand, we had to put this in uh, just to make it work. But what you've got is you've got a, a, a word behind each of the other words, right? That's important to us. Many of the translations that are being used today are not actually word-for-word translations. They're dynamic equivalents. And what that means is I read the verse in the Hebrew I say, well, here's what it means, and I then translate, it, <clears throat> translate the thought I've just read uh, in the Hebrew into the English and give it to you. Well, the problem with that is I've got my prejudices. I've got my misconceptions. And you know what? I can take the Word of God, and I could translate it, and I could give it to you. I, it would be really good as far as I'm concerned, but I might be missing something in it. I definitely would be missing something in it at some point. The second reason <clears throat> I would we stay with the King James Version is this, because <clears throat> really the team of scholars that, <clears throat> that, 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 that translated it really haven't met their equivalent since then. I still read the names of the, um, 
the translators uh, in other books because they were each experts in their fields. Right? They were, I mean, it's an incredible array. If you take the time to actually look at the men uh, that translated the King James, you had a bunch of men uh, who knew their stuff. They really knew their stuff. Right? The third reason is this. They were, a comp- they, were, they, they were not chosen from one particular section of Christianity. Right? Uh, they came from a, a wide spectrum of Christianity. Uh, you have some words in the, in the King James that people will say, well, you know, it's a bad translation because uh, they didn't translate this word. They didn't translate the word baptize, right? Well, the reason they didn't translate tra- the word baptize is actually a transliteration, which means they took, they took the Greek word, basically, and, and dumped it in the English. And here's the reason, because they couldn't agree on what it meant. And so they put it in there for us, and you can take your concordance, and you can look it up, and you can actually uh, <clears throat> come to the place where you, you agree. And that's actually checks and balances that went into it. If I was to do you a Baptist translation of the Scripture, it would probably be a lot different than the King James. Now, I would like it, maybe you would like it too, but you know what? The King James is a fair translation uh, in the sense that it's used, uh, that, that, that we've got a word-for-word translation done by scholars, and what we've got is something that, was, that had checks and balances, and the checks and balances in the translation of it are incredible. Now, <clears throat> I don't bring it up much, and the reason I don't bring it up much is because it can be a huge bone of contention. Uh, amongst Christians in our day and age. I mean a huge bone of contention, right? And again, you can end up with people being carnal about it. But you do need to understand that we're not using the King James Bible just because it's the Bible that we've always used. We're using the King James Bible because I and the pastors that went before me believe this is a trustworthy translation of the Scripture. I don't want to leave my faith in the hands of scholars. I want a trustworthy translation of the scripture. When they give me a word for word and I can go to my concordance and check what the word means for myself, I like that. And I think, you know, we look at the King James and we say, well, you know what, it's kind of awkward and some of the wording is, uh, is difficult and so on. You know what? It's worth the time to work your heart, your, your head around some of those difficult words. There really are about 200 questionable, questionable words uh, in <clears throat> the King James because English is a change. All languages are changing. It's completely different. Uh, if you were to get into the place where you wanted to change it so that it was modern English, well, you would have to have one for 2016, and you would have to have one for 2017, and you would have to have one for 2018, because all the time, uh, language is changing. But you know what? <clears throat> it doesn't come easy sometimes, but it's worth your while to take and actually delve into it and get to know it. There are a lot of other reasons. It's a much deeper topic than that. Uh, <clears throat> but just know that when people say to you there's no difference in the translations, that's just plain not true. There are differences in the translation. This one may not be so serious. Uh, there are more serious differences than this, but it's a difference. And you know what? It would upset me. Uh, I can take other translations, and I, I, I can enjoy them as, as commentaries. But this is what I trust, uh, to give me the word of God. All right. Uh, that is the subject of the King James in two minutes for you, okay? But I would encourage you uh, to check it out. If you want me to give you something to read, I would gladly give you something to read. Uh, and as I say, don't get into the place where you get all carnal about it uh, and you want, to look, you want to slight everybody else for it, but do understand there are reasons why we go with it. All right, First Samuel chapter 7. And let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin looking at our subject. Father in heaven, would you bless us tonight, Lord? We love you. And Lord, we want all that you have for us. Would you help us as we look to your word? Would you help us, Lord, to 
uh, draw near to you and for you to draw near to us. And all blessed spirit of the living God, uh, Lord, would you give us a glimpse of revival? Would you give us in our hearts a glimpse of what you could do in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, history so far as far as 1 Samuel is concerned, right? <clears throat> what we've got is we've got Samuel being born at the beginning of the book, and then we've got the story <clears throat> of Eli and his two sons that he didn't restrain. And then <clears throat> uh, God makes passes judgment on Eli and says, Eli, both your sons are going to die in one day. I'm going to make everybody's ears tingle with what I do. And then we saw last week, we saw it happen. Uh, there's a battle. Uh, the Philistines are winning in the battle. 4,000 men of Israel are killed. And so the Philistines, <clears throat> the, the, the men of Israel are terrified. They wonder why God's not on their side. And they decide to make God get on their side. So they take the ark and they bring the ark down into the battle thinking that it's going to save them. Well, the ark doesn't save them. <clears throat> God is not a rabbit's foot to be dragged around and made to do what we want to do. So God, let's... Uh, the battle go against them, 30,000 men die. Right? Now, <clears throat> 30,000 men didn't die there because, uh, <clears throat> because they had taken the ark into battle. 30,000 men died because God's judgment was upon Israel. Israel had not been living right. They had not been doing right. Uh, Eli was not leading them in the right way. His sons made people abhor the temple. And what had happened is Israel had done exactly what God had told them not to do. They had slipped into idolatry. And there was idolatry in Israel. There were people worshipping idols. The idols of the Canaanites and the Amorites that were in the land, they had taken them on board to themselves. And they were actually worshipping things that God had specifically told them not to do. So God judgment. They were judged them. They were decimated. Losing 30,000 men <clears throat> and the rest of the army being put to flight meant that Israel was now under the thumb of, Philistine, of, of the Philistines again. Uh, <clears throat> the Philistines were in charge. They could really do what they want. And... <clears throat> Chapter 7 is God turning them around. Now, it's a key chapter in Scripture. It's one of those chapters that if you didn't have chapter 7 of 1 Samuel uh, in Scripture, and if it just continued on the way it had gone up to now, really, uh, we would have the nation of Israel being wiped out pretty quickly because they were close to the edge, right? They were, uh, they were close to the edge, but God turns them around. He's going to use a man to do it. He uses this man, Samuel, to turn the nation of Israel around. But they turn around completely. All right, now let's, <clears throat> let's begin to read here. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab and the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Right? And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Right? So... <clears throat> After the episode of Beth Shemesh, the uh, men of Kirjath-Jerim come and take the ark and they bring it up and they put it in the house of Abinadab and they're kind of afraid of it. Now, later on we're going to find out that Abinadab said that his house was blessed because they had the ark in it. Right? But we're not finding that out now. Everybody's just terrified of the ark. Death follows in the wake of the ark. Right? <clears throat> and everybody's terrified of, uh, <clears throat> of the issue of the ark. Right? <clears throat> but uh, it's 20 years the ark abides there, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, what's happening in these 20 years? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but we know from chapter 6 and verse 1, sorry, not chapter 6 and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out 
against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And in some senses, by this point, Eli's not dead yet, but by this point, Eli has been removed from the picture, and Samuel is now the man that God is speaking through, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows that this, this, uh, this boy, this young man, uh, is actually the one that is speaking for God in Israel. And so <clears throat> Samuel has a ministry during these 20 years, a ministry of, ministry of taking the nation and dealing with them. Uh, <clears throat> what he's doing is he's going from place to place, and he's speaking, and he's preaching, and he's declaring truth, and he's turning the nation of Israel around. He's pointing out their sin. He's dealing with those things during these 20 years. It's not like it's just empty. Uh, <clears throat> Samuel is pointing out to them why they lost 34,000 men uh, in that battle. He's pointing out to them why the hand of God uh, is against them and not for them. He's showing them the wickedness that there is in the nation. And you know what? After 20 years, it begins to bear fruit. After 20 years, the nation comes to the place where it's ready for change. They've been lamenting after God. <clears throat> Verse 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. What he tells them to do, he said, put away the idols. Now what's he telling them to do? He's telling them to put away that which is offensive to God in your midst. Get rid of it. Remove it. Now, do you know that every revival that you will hear of, you will find that's always a prerequisite. It's kind of hard to work out sometimes uh, if that happens because God or if that happens or if God, God does something because man. I tend to think it's the, uh, it's the former, that God actually moves in people's hearts and they actually get rid of the idols, the things that offend God. But either way... It's always a case of before God can move, he calls his people to remove the things that are offensive to him. You see, here's the thing that we pray for when we pray for revival. We pray for God to manifest his presence with us, don't we? We, we talk about God coming down. We, we talk about God showing himself. We talk about God making his mighty arm bare. Uh, we talk about God being in the midst of his people. We talk about doing, God doing great things for us and through us. Now, in order for God to come down and dwell with his people, the things that offend him have to be removed. The things that bother him have to be removed. <clears throat> we have to look at our lives and say, well, Lord, what would offend you? Now, let me just counsel you here a little bit on this. <clears throat> a couple of thoughts uh, that come to me on it. When it comes to the things that offend God, some of the things in our lives that offend God we know instantly. You know, I could, I could go around the room and I could ask you, is there anything in your life that offends God? And some of you would say, yeah, this. And you know that's what's offending God. That needs to go. That needs to be dealt with. I, you know, you, if there's something the Spirit of God knows that is wrong in your life and, and he's shown you that it's wrong in your life, you need to deal with that. You need to see that removed. Now, I could go around the room and I would find some of you uh, feeling bad about something in your life because somebody told you that was wrong and you're not really sure it's wrong, but you feel because somebody told you it's wrong, uh, maybe it's the problem, right? Well, there's, there's a case that can be made for removing doubtful things, but here's the point. It needs to be the things that offend God, the things that bother God. Let me give you an illustration of it. Imagine you have a husband and a wife, right? 
And um, <clears throat> the wife is longing for her husband to spend more time with her. And he's not. So she's bent out of shape. And she's upset. Now the husband, for his part, thinks, you know what? What's wrong with her? I'm not making enough money. And he actually spends his time trying to make more money to please his wife. It's, it's a pretty common occurrence. Right? He's... he's pushing himself hard uh, to please her in one area, when that's not the problem at all. The problem is that she wants him to spend more time with her. I think sometimes, just in the same way as between us, we can get it wrong with each other, I think we can get it wrong with God too. I think we can get it wrong with God and we can actually be, <clears throat> be not notice the situations that are an offense to him and notice the situations that <clears throat> are not an offense to him. Yeah, I had a list I was going to, <clears throat> going to read tonight, and then I said, I'm not going to read the list, because the list is not going to help them. Right? The list, the list what, you, what, what, what you'll do is, if I read a list out to you, you'll check the boxes on the ones that bother you. Right? And you say, okay, this must be the problem. And that won't help at all. Do you know what the husband needs to do to find out what the wife's problem is? And you're the only way he's going to find out what, what her problem is? He's going to have to ask her. He's going to have to actually talk to her. And I know, man, I shouldn't be saying that. You know, that's a terrible thing to say to you. You've got to go and talk to your wife and ask your wife. But you've got to go and ask her. You're never going to know otherwise. Do you know how you're going to find out what it is that might offend between you and God? You're going to have to ask him. And he can show you. And he can show you and he can remove it. Do you know as a church, we need to ask God, is there anything that would offend you here? Is there anything, Lord, that would make it hard for you? to come into our midst? Is there anything, Lord, that you would not be happy with in our midst? And if there is, it needs to go. There's something in your life that that, that bothers God. It needs to go. You say, but, you know, as far as I know, uh, when I compare myself with other people, I'm doing okay. It's not about you comparing yourself with other people or doing okay. It's about, is God okay with what you're doing? And here's the other thing for us. This is so hard for us. You know what? God may ask of me something he doesn't ask of you. And he may ask of you something he doesn't ask of me. Isn't that frustrating? Don't you want a clear line? Don't you want the list? Don't you want the, you know, let's print the list on the wall. If you, get, if you can check all the box on these things, all the box on these things, you're fine. It's not like that. You see, the problem, in order for God to be in our midst, is we need to clear the rubble. It's not that God doesn't want to be here. It's not that God refuses to be here. He just won't be here when there are things that offend. He won't be in your life like you want him to be. Do you know that you can have personal revival anytime you're willing to clear the junk out of your life and let God come in? And the only way you're going to know what junk to clear out is, Lord, is there something here that offends you? Is there something in my life that offends you? Samuel had gone around and he'd done a pretty good job <clears throat> of pointing out something that Israel should have known. These idols offend God. Put them away. He's not coming until you get rid of the idols. Let me say this, by the way, too, uh, when it comes to you putting out the things, putting things out of your life. You know, God will show you things in your life that are a problem for him, but you know the biggest problem is going to be for God, that you're not trusting him. So that's the problem with idols. That's the problem for the nation of Israel. They were trusting their idols. They were looking at their idols, and they were saying, hey, you know what? <clears throat> They'll give us a good field a good field of corn. They'll, they'll give us a, a, you know, good barley. You know, these, these idols, if we, just, if we just worship them, they will do it for us. And that was leading them into all kinds of wickedness. Almost had them kicked out of the land. But the problem is they weren't trusting God. 
And you're going to find that the heart of all your sin, the heart of all the things that block the way to God is, you're not trusting him. He loves you. He's got your best at heart. And he wants you to come to him and trust him for the blessing. Now, I will give you this. He won't yield instantly to what you want and what you need. He doesn't do that one. He uses it to draw us close to him and make us depend upon him. How do you build faith? Well, you make them wait longer. That's God's plan. So God will make you wait, but God will deal with you, and God will build faith in your life uh, if you're willing to let him. But he wants you to trust him. And the things that are obstacles in your life are really obstacles to you trusting him, obstacles to you depending upon him. And God doesn't want you trusting in anything else. God doesn't want you giving the glory to anything else. God wants you trusting in him. He wants you depending upon him. You know, it would be good for all of us to spend some time this week and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that you're not pleased with? Is there anything in my life that bothers you? Is there anything in my life that you look into it and you go, oh. The only way you're going to know is if you go to him. You may be, you may be squared away with everybody else. Everybody else may think, hey, you know what, you're, you're fine. But they don't count. It's God. God needs to be able to look into your life and say, yeah, that's fine. That's what I want. You see, it's God's nature and the nature of the promise he gave us when he saved us is that he comes and he dwells with us. It's his, the, the, the nature of Christianity is that God is here with us and we should know it. We should know it. But you need to ask, you need to ask God, Lord, is there anything in my life that offends you? And you need to be open to God. I find we're, we're, we're hedged in by so many things. I find I can be so like the Pharisees. And he, he, here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had the rule book. They wrote the rule book before Jesus ever came. Now, if Jesus was really God, he had to fit in the rule book. They weren't bad people, by the way. The Pharisees were not bad, wicked people who were out to, uh, you know, do their own thing. They, they, if you had asked them, they would have said, that's ridiculous. Our whole lives are given over to God. But here's what they had. They had a rule book. And the rule book they had, Jesus had to fit into. And he didn't. So kill him. Because he's wrecking the rules. And he's making everybody else turn away from the rules. So, so listen, let's get rid of him. He's going to destroy the whole thing. And you know what? We can be like that. We can have our little rule book. And who knows where we got our rule book from. We picked it up. <clears throat> some of it's because of our, uh, our temperaments. Some of it's because of people we've listened to. Some of it's because of influences in our lives. We've got our rule book. And <clears throat> you know what? We expect God to fit in our rule book. And you really need to come to God and say, oh, Lord, let's put away the rule book. Is there anything here that offends you? Is there anything in my life that you're not happy with? Because, Lord, if there is, I want to change it. By the way, that's an important part of it. God's not going to show you so you can say, ah, oh, no, that's too hard. No, <clears throat> anything else. He only shows you if you're willing to do. If you're willing to do what he says to you, he will show you. But we need to put away the rule book. We need to, <clears throat> we need to let him speak. We need to let him show us <clears throat> what in our lives uh, offends him because we want him to come. Look at verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. They did it. They put, <clears throat> they put away Ashtoreth and Balaam, uh, <clears throat> and they served the Lord only. They put away all the idols. They got rid of them. They said, no, <clears throat> we're, we're not serving them. Now, listen, I'll tell you what. If, if, if there's never uh, an, <clears throat> an ear of corn grows in that field again, I'm not worshiping Ashtoreth to do it. 
And, you know, whatever happens, whatever it costs me, I'm going to serve the Lord and him only. And they made the decision. Now, verse 4 is a testimony to Samuel's work during the 20 years. Because he went around and he preached the word and he told them what was wrong and he convinced them and he talked with them and he argued with them and he showed them. And by the time we get to verse 4, they're saying yes. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And just like they were going to do at Mount Carmel years later, they're saying, yes, we're going to make him our God and we're going to, we're going to serve him and him only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. By the way, <clears throat> the greatest things that happen in the Bible happen through what? Prayer. Now that kind of frustrates me because I like to do things. But the greatest thing that happened, greatest things that happen in the Bible happen through prayer. Samuel, in one prayer, is going to actually wreak more havoc on the Philistines than, than Samson did in his whole lifetime. Samson killed 3,000 people in his death. And it says that he killed more people in his death than he did in his lifetime. Big, strong man. Able to do great things. Mighty man. But let's see what's, what Samuel is going to do, because he's going to do a whole lot more, and he's going to do it through prayer. You know what you and I need to understand? Prayer is the only answer to the needs of our day. Prayer is the only answer to the needs of our church. Prayer is the only answer to your needs and your family's needs. <clears throat> it's not about what you're going to do. Listen, you ought to do what the Lord tells you to do. But you know where you're going to find out what you should do? In prayer. Prayer is the answer. It is the only answer. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> verse 5 again. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. All right now, what they were doing in, in drawing water and pouring it out was it was a sign of their repentance. They were pouring themselves out before the Lord. They were saying, Lord, forgive us. We are wrong. It's a picture. Uh, in the Old Testament of what they were doing. And they fasted on that day uh, and said there, now again, fasting is not about you denying yourself and earning brownie points with God. Hey, you know what? I fasted. God needs to do what I asked him to do. Fasting is not about you manipulating God. Don't get in the place where you think, well, you know what? If I hold out long enough and fast long enough, God will do it because he might just let you die. And then you have to look him in the eye and he'd say to you, what are you doing here? Right? So don't, don't get in the place where you think you can manipulate God with it. Fasting is when you put away even food because you want to deal with him. You want to spend time with him. <clears throat> you want to get close to him because he's become more important to you than food itself. You know, in John chapter 4, uh, <clears throat> it's a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, the guys go off to buy food. Jesus stays and talks to the woman at the well. And the guys come back and... Um, <clears throat> He's not hungry. Right? Um, and he says to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. What's he saying? His very food was doing his father's will. And when it comes to us fasting, what we're doing is we're putting away other things so that we can seek him and seek his face and seek his will. And you know, some of the problems that come into your life are problems that are there to draw you closer to him. And maybe you need to fast. 
Maybe you need to put food aside. Maybe you need to look into his face. You need to seek him out. You need to cry out to God. You see, God wants your attention. He does. He wants your attention. We get so busy, don't we? So busy doing I don't know what. Right? But we get so busy. And God says, no, 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 no. Slow down. Spend some time seeking me and seeking my face. Put away your food. Put away your games. Put away your computer. Put away all those things. Just spend your time seeking me. And you know what? It might be the most profitable day or days of your life if you would do that. Just put those things away. Sorry. Verse 6 again. Uh, And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, here's what happened. They get right with God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I think there's joy in the camp because they're getting right with God. They put away their idols. Samuel has judged them. Um, They've gotten right with God. I think, you know, every time you get right with God, it's sweet, isn't it? Every time you get right with God, your heart lifts and there's a joy in your heart. And I think that's what Israel has. And you know what happens? Immediately the enemy sweeps in. Don't be surprised if that happens in your life, by the way. Don't be surprised if the moment where, you know what? You get right with God, your hope revives, and you begin to feel God can do great things in your life. And you're looking at God's going to do great things. All of a sudden the enemy comes in. Don't, Don't be a bit surprised at all. What happened was the Philistines heard there's a gathering of Israel. They're obviously going to fight against us. <clears throat> We're not going to let them, uh, <clears throat> let them rise against us. Let's go up and let's deal with them. Right? <clears throat> and the Philistines, you know, they weren't coming to parley. They weren't coming to <clears throat> you know, have a party. They were coming to kill. They were coming to go to war and they were coming to kill. <clears throat> Verse 8, when the children of Israel, <clears throat> and the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, you know what they didn't say? Go get the ark of the Lord, guys, and bring it down to the battle. Because that didn't work. Can't use God like a rabbit's foot. What they said is Samuel. They knew Samuel. They knew this about Samuel. Samuel's in contact with God. This man is walking with God. This man is in touch with heaven. And so they say, Samuel, you cry out for us. You cry out to God. You ask God because they knew they needed somebody who could touch heaven to actually make things happen. They didn't need the ark of the Lord brought down by two reprobate boys into the battle. What they needed was they needed God to come in on their side. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. This is the turning, by the way. Samuel cried unto the Lord, and the Lord heard him. Now, what's the dynamics of it here? The dynamics is that they identified what it was that offended against God, and they got rid of it. They removed it. They got rid of it. They confessed their sin. They made things right with God. The enemy came up against them, and they they recognized where their strength lay. Their strength lay in God. Samuel, will you cry out to God for us? We can't do this. We're going to be slaughtered unless you cry out to God for us. And so Samuel cried out to God, and the Lord heard him. 
And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. Now, it doesn't give you a whole lot of details. But you know what? This was a vast army. This was a huge army of the Philistines. The last time they came up against Israel, they slew 30,000 of the men of Israel. So there's a vast army on the field. But you know what? This army, God thundered on them that day, and he discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them uh, until they came under Bethkar. Let me just say a little bit to you about battle in, in days like this. The, the battle was two armies facing each other. Right? And as long as the armies were facing each other, they could cut and whack and do everything they could do at each other. Right? And, you had, and the, the, the battle lasted really until somebody, for some reason, lost heart. Right? And when the other army lost heart and began to run, they lost their strength, they lost their power, and they were just easy pickings for the army. That went on through the whole, through the whole Middle Ages. That's the, way, that's the way battles were won. As soon as you got the other army to turn, you slaughtered them. You ran after them and you slaughtered them. Well, here's what happens. This army gets turned without Israel doing anything. And Israel would have come down, picked up the swords that were on the ground, the men that had fallen and the stuff that had been left behind, and ran after them uh, and come after them. <clears throat> and they, pers- they, verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. That was their town, their city. Uh, and they were safe once they got there, right? <clears throat> but they destroyed them. The Philistines were destroyed. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That's a great thought, isn't it? He put up a stone for them. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. What does that mean? That was something everybody, every time somebody went by that stone, they said, you know what? That's the day the Lord put the Philistines to flight before us. That was a great day. That was a wonderful day. You know what? You need to put some Ebenezers up in your life. You need to put some stones up where God has helped you and God has made things. Because you know what? We're fickle creatures and we forget rapidly. You need to put some things up. No, God, help me there. Not a shrine, but a stone to remember you, for you to remember, to remind you that God helped me in that place. Because you know what? If you're his child, he's been working in your life. He's been doing things in your life. And you need to remember and purpose to remember the good things that God has done in your life. Because there's going to come days, you know, when the Philistines, the enemy comes in again. There's going to come days when it looks bad. And you know what? If you can remember what God did in your life, you can be strengthened and encouraged by it and your faith can be built. And that's what this nation needed. They needed their faith built. Uh, verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they came no more onto the coast of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now think about the change in the situation, right? Up to now, the Philistines have from time to time attacked Israel and destroyed them. In the book of uh, Judges, we saw that uh, the Philistines very often were in charge and they could do what they liked. They could do what they liked to Israel. They could take their crops. They could steal anything they wanted. Israel's life was a misery because of the Philistines. And that's the way it's been. But in, in, in verse 13, it says uh, that the Philistines were subdued 
and that they came not up against Israel all the days of Samuel. Now what happened? What changed their situation so drastically? What turned the whole situation around? The people of God got right with God and Samuel prayed. They weren't a great army. They didn't have great leadership for an army. No, they weren't. You know what? The people of God got right with God and Samuel prayed. Do you know the most important weapon you have in your fight against all the wickedness out there is prayer. But do you know that you can't pray effectively if if things are not right between you and God? The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I hold on to sin, he's not going to listen. He's not going to hear me. Oh, yes, and you can, you, can, you can cry out to God all you like, but it's going to bounce off the ceiling. Now, you say, that's hard. Doesn't God care? Yes, of course God cares. Will God show you what's wrong? Yes. And you know what? He probably has. And you probably know already what's wrong. You probably know already what it is that's standing between you and God. And you know what you need to do? Get rid of it. You say, but <clears throat> it's valuable to me. Is it really as valuable as God coming down on your side in the issue and helping you? Is anything as valuable as the blessing of God on your life? Is there anything that you could look at and you could say, you know what, yeah, that's kind of more valuable to me. There's not, is there? Whatever it is that stands between you and God needs to go. It's just not worth it. And God puts it in your hands. He says, get rid of the wickedness. Get rid of that which offends me. Deal with it. Get rid of it, and I will come. <clears throat> Verse 14, And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast there, thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and went from year to year in the circuit, to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto God. <clears throat> so what we have is, we have the nation of Israel being turned around. And it really is turned. You know, <clears throat> when it says that the Philistines were not able to stand against them uh, <clears throat> all the days of Samuel's life, you know, <clears throat> Samuel's life goes into the time of David. It goes through Saul, and it goes into the time of David. Israel's life is changed. It's turned completely. All the, all the years of this man that, that was able to pray and cry out to God and see God do great things in this nation. Now, our God is still the same. He still answers prayer. He still requires holiness as a prerequisite to us crying out to him. And if we will deal with sin... And cry out to God. He will deliver. Why? Because that's who he is. He's a delivering God. But if we will hold on to sin. Maybe say, well, it's not so bad. Maybe refuse to look at it like when God shows it to us. If we will hold on to sin, then we're not going to know the sweetness of his presence. There's nothing worth you losing the blessing of God in your life. Nothing. 
Whatever it is that he points out to you, deal with it. Let's stand for prayer. Let's do this. Let's just take a few moments. And let's just you personally, between you and God, ask God, is there anything between you and I, Lord? Is there anything between you and I? Is there anything that hinders you blessing and you coming into my life? And if he shows it to you, right where you stand, get rid of it, deal with it. Just get rid of it. You might come to the place where you say, well, as far as I know, there's nothing between me and God. Well, then pray for others around you. Pray for others around you that God will take and God will show them and that they can deal with it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening and thank you for your people. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the glory story of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, blessed spirit of the living God, would you move in the hearts of your people that we might yield up anything that offends you? Oh, blessed spirit, sometimes we can't see it. But we know that you're good and generous. And Lord, that you will show us. Lord, will you show us anything that might offend you that it might be dealt with? 